Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Well, hello. <laughs> uh, special hello to the Sand Sisters who are here. Yay. So uh, I walked across the desert with some of these amazing women who are here today and uh, largely they are responsible uh, for me being here because I told this story uh, when we were partway across the desert. And it seemed really bizarre because, of course, we're out in the beautiful desert and I'm talking about the middle of an ocean. And it, it was kind of an amazing experience. So thank you so much for inviting me here uh, tonight. So people often ask me, how did it start? And so I thought it might be helpful just to put that to bed right away. So... This is a, a photo of a men's crew, a men's rowing crew, who decided that they were going to row from London to Paris. And that sounded pretty exciting. And I was part of the rowing uh, fraternity at that time. And it sort of started to inspire me. Now, I'd love to tell you that, you know, growing up, I always aspired to rowing an ocean and this was a dream come true, but actually that would not be true. Because really what happened is that these guys had somebody injured in their crew just before they were about to attempt the record. And so I rang them up and I said to them, hey, good news, guys, I'm ready. I can take his place. And some of you might not be surprised to hear that this men's crew didn't really want a lady rower in their crew. And so I got the hump. And I thought to myself, this is not fair. I'm as strong as they are. I was working out in the gym at the same time as these guys. I was lifting heavier weights. I was fit. I wasn't male. That was the only thing that was happening to me. So I thought, you know what? I think we should do something. So I talked to some of my fellow rowing colleagues in the female crews, and I said to them, come on, let's, let's do something for ourselves. And so I managed to convince three other women to come and row the Atlantic because London to Paris just wasn't far enough for us. <laughs> and so that's how it all started. And once we got some uh, agreement that that's what we were going to do, we had a lot of work on. So we started training. We started in the gym. Uh, we rowed and rowed and rowed, and I can't even tell you how many hours of rowing we did. I can certainly tell you that I had a lot of sore pieces of my body uh, and I can tell you that I spent an enormous amount of time just going backwards and forwards on that rowing machine, on and on and on and on. We also had to do a lot of other things though. So in preparation, it took us about 16 months to prepare for the row um, and we had to build our boat. So the boat that you can see up here uh, is our boat nearly as it arrived uh, in Guernsey where we were living. And what we had to do is we had to cut out all those hatches that you can see there. We had to put all the safety equipment on. We had to design where the solar panels would go in order to give us power because clearly we were going to be out at sea for a long time and we needed to power some of our equipment. So the most important piece of equipment was a water maker. 
Uh, and that was to provide us with, obviously, fresh water to drink, um, but also some water for washing on those days where washing was possible, which at this point we thought was going to be every day and we were going to have like a little shower thing rigged up and we were going to stand and we were going to wash ourselves and it was all going to be jolly japes and then we were just going to get back and row again because that's how it should be in the middle of summer in the Atlantic. And we were more worried about how much sun cream we should take, <laughs> really, than most other things. So we also had to find ourselves some sponsors. Uh, that proved to be one of our biggest uphill battles. So uh, what we found was that there was, um, there was a lot of support for us verbally. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, go do it. And as soon as you said to people, would you mind awfully signing this cheque, then they sort of went off a bit and they said, well, do you think you'll really make it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we, we came up against some real prejudice. So we came up against some prejudice because we were a little bit older than the young men who were rowing. Uh, we were a little bit shorter. I've got heels on today, but we were a bit shorter. Uh, and there was lots of people that thought, well, they don't really look like athletes. And that would be true. We didn't really look like athletes, but we were absolutely determined that we were going to get across. And so we worked really, really hard to get sponsorship. And we did all sorts of weird things. And you'll see a couple of dressed up people in the bottom corner there. Uh, we ran fancy dress parties. We walked the streets. We sold T-shirts and hats and anything we basically could just to raise the funds. It cost us uh, in the region of £60,000 uh, to do the row, um, which was quite a lot of money when one T-shirt goes for £5 and one raffle ticket goes for £1. <laughs> it's a lot to sell. Eventually, once we got some momentum behind us, we did get some, uh, some more significant sponsorship. So we had uh, some corporates that then uh, came to the party for us, which was fantastic. So, sorry, I missed one out. Uh, so once we got those corporate sponsors going and once we sort of convinced people, mainly ourselves, that it was possible to actually do this amazing thing, we then had to get on with the really practical stuff. So things like uh, packing the food. So in order to get across the Atlantic, we thought, and it was estimated, it would take us somewhere between 55 and 60 days. So we had to have enough food for every single day because there are no supermarkets on the way. And there is no boat that drops you off supplies because to be self-sufficient and to take this record, you must not take anything at all from anybody else for the entire duration of the journey. Now, that probably sounds like that would be fairly straightforward because how many people are you going to run into in the middle of the Atlantic? However, when you start to get close to the Caribbean, some of those really beautiful yachts start to turn up. And on those really beautiful yachts, of which we saw three, they would come up beside you and they would be saying to you, would you like something? Like maybe a cold drink? <laughs> and we had to say no. And I think that was one of the hardest things we had to do. One lot of crew who were fabulous to us, we'd lost our communications, and they were fabulous. They said, is there anything we can do for you? We've got a chocolate cake. <laughs> so we said, yes, you can stop talking about chocolate cake. That's what you can do. 
but they were amazing. But our food supplies had to sustain us, and obviously we were rowing most of the day. So you're using up a huge amount of calories. So we had to consume between five and a half and 6,000 calories a day. It's a lot of food to get in. And it's something that, um, you know, I never thought I'd struggle with having to eat too much, <laughs> ever, because that's actually one of my skill areas is eating a lot. And unfortunately, I got very seasick, so eating became a problem for me. Anyway, more of that later. So we got our... Uh, Kit all um, packed up. We then had to squeeze it all into the boat, which was more difficult than you can imagine. And then we had to get our boat wrapped. We had to officially launch her. Uh, and the official launching, which is traditionally done with a bottle of champagne, uh, we made sure that this was the start of the luckiest journey that was ever going to happen. And we did that by making sure that the person who launched our boat was the local squash and tennis champion, good swing. We also diamond drilled the outside of the champagne bottle so that we made sure it smashed. And this was how this whole journey went. We didn't rely on luck, we just made it. So we just made sure we were really, really prepared. And that was the thing that really got us through. We eventually got to La Gomera. Uh, where the other boats were all ready to go. So this was part of a race in which 26 boats started and 16 boats completed. It was the roughest race on record, the roughest weather on record since records had begun for that time of year. So much for the luck. It was wonderful, though, that at this point to be around other people who were struggling with the same things as us. And we were all having lots of conversations about, so, so what do we do if, what do we do if, and what happens when those, you know, I don't know, things that we don't even know about yet start to happen, you know, what are we going to do and how are we going to eat all this food and what happens if we get sick and what happens if we break something and all those kinds of things. And all those conversations went on for two weeks. So we had to be there for two weeks beforehand. Uh, and all those conversations were getting going. As you can imagine, the nerves were just getting more and more and we'd have to take ourselves off for little walks and breathe and breathe. Whose idea was this? Oh, it was mine. Oh. <laughs> okay. So eventually the two weeks were over and we got started. So this is start day. You will notice it is beautifully sunny. It is dead flat. <laughs> Two days before this, we were actually due to start, but there was a hurricane that came through. And this hurricane took those massive rubbish bins that they had at the end of the road and lifted them and just threw them. And we were sitting in a cafe going, oh, <laughs> glad we're not out there yet. <laughs> This day dawned and we thought, oh, well, hey, hurricane season, that must be over now. Excellent. Because that's all you can think when you're about to get into a boat and row across an ocean. So off we started. All very lovely. Again, slapping on the sunscreen, making sure we're all, you know, healthy and lovely and ready to go. Smiling for the cameras. Here we are. And then this happened. So for most of our race, 
the conditions were so horrendous that I haven't actually got that many photos of them. Because we weren't thinking about taking photos, we were thinking about surviving. We were trying to work out how we were really going to get this two-ton boat to the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. It's two and a half thousand nautical miles. For those of you who work in kilometres, that's about 4,700. Basically, it's a long way. <laughs> it's a really long way. It's a particularly long way when on some days you don't go forwards at all because the wind is at your nose. So sometimes we could row and sometimes we couldn't row because the conditions were such that the, the waves would come. When they were actually big, it wasn't, it wasn't actually so bad because you can row up a wave and then row down the other side of it. And although slightly terrifying, <laughs> it's doable because it's smooth. You know, you kind of, <laughs> where are we going to get to the top of it? And then you go down the other side. Now, what's fantastic, of course, about the other side of the wave is you start to surf. And trust me, if you've ever been in a big boat surfing, it's fantastic fun. Uh, except for the other people in the boat, because when you're going, this is fantastic, they're going, oh, my God, <laughs> don't do that. We're going too fast. Um, because there was always the risk of turning. And that was always a problem. Um, a lot of boats capsized in our race. Uh, and one boat in particular, when we got into uh, the other side, into, like, into uh, the Canaries, one boat told us that he had capsized four times in one day. Hello. <laughs> so we came to this really difficult patch. Um, I got very seasick. And that was very, very unexpected. So what had happened was um, we left, and as you saw in the earlier slide, dead flat, everybody's pretty happy, we're getting a bit hot, but it's okay. On day three, I started to be physically sick. A couple of the others had a little bit of seasickness, but not, not too bad. I got seasick for 12 days. Who's been seasick? Okay. So you will know what I mean by this. Seasickness is one of those hideous things and you just, you can't operate. You, you just, you know, you just want to curl up in a corner and make it stop. 12 days of it um, was pretty horrendous. And I got to the stage of being, in fact, so thin, I couldn't even take any water on because I was bringing it up. So I was pretty dangerously dehydrated. Um, and, it, and it got to be a real problem. Um, in the last six of those 12 days, I could hardly row at all, so I'd take a stroke and then be over the side, um, and it really wasn't working well. So we had, a, we had some really big issues to, to try and sort out. We had days where the surf just looked like mountains. Um, people sometimes ask how big were the waves, and that's a little bit hard to answer, but I can tell you that our boat was nine metres long, and when you're in the trough of the wave, in the base of the wave, the wave in front of you was, you know, the stern of the boat was at the bottom and the nose is here. There were still two more boat lengths to go. It was enormous, absolutely enormous. So it was often quite frightening, um, but the worst waves were not the big long ones. They were the short chops that kind of came in sideways at you because you just, with oars, you just can't control it. It's really difficult. Now, this looks like we're smiling. <laughs> it 
It's kind of like that. <laughs> so we are smiling. A lot of the time we did a lot of singing. We did a lot of things to try and keep our, you know, just keep us up in that uh, way of staying motivated and not just, frankly, throwing ourselves over the side of the boat and going, it's too hard. Um, the waves were enormous, but they were also really exciting. So it was about trying to access that, you know, how do you access the excitement? How do you change that fear into something a little bit exciting? And so that's what we spent a lot of time doing. This is a, a very rare shot of us in the middle of the ocean. So as you can imagine, we can't take this shot because we're on the boat. There was one boat that came up near us um, when, when it was pretty rough, and this was as close as they could get. And the reason it's so blurry is it's, it's really zoomed out. But this, is, this to me really says this is what the ocean was like. It was just being very, very small in a very, very big place. And it's a great leveller. But it's also a great um, example of what you can actually achieve when you just decide you're going to do it. And you might not be good at it and you might make lots of mistakes on the way and, you know, you might get sick and your mates might have to help you out and all the rest of that stuff. But actually, if you keep going in the right direction and you just keep on, you can get there. And that's all we did. It wasn't heroic. It wasn't the best crew in the world. It was just on the days that we were out there, we just kept going. And sometimes that's just what it's about, just keeping on going. So this is Lois's hand. Um, all our hands are a little bit like this. Um, we, you can imagine, you know, you're rowing for eight to ten hours a day. Your hands get get uh, pretty shattered. Um, there's two other bits of your body that also hit the boat. We pleased to know I haven't got slides of those. Uh, but we also had, you know, we had a lot of salt sores. Um, our skin was just wet all the time, and so you get that, you know, when you come out of the bath and it's all wrinkly, yeah, just multiply that by 67 days, basically, and you kind of get the idea. There were some fantastic days, um, and this was actually Christmas Day. Now, um, this day we got in the water, and the reason we're holding up some sponges is because what's actually happening is we're cleaning the barnacles off the bottom of our boat. So we got in and did a barnacle clean. Um, and you'll see we're all, you know, sort of pretty suntanned and, and looking pretty happy. It was amazing to be in the water because most of the rest of the days we couldn't get in. And so just to have a swim was incredible. And this particular picture is taken where the ocean is five miles deep. So we're swimming at the top of what's five miles underneath us. It's just incredible. Such a spooky feeling. And as we jumped in, so Dolly was the first one to jump in, Sarah, one of my crewmates, she was first to jump in. She jumped off the bow of the boat and as she hit the water, a yellowfin tuna came shooting out of the water. <laughs> it was, and definitely the tuna was more frightened because um, we did have the discussion about who would have been. It was brilliant. So on the way, we also had uh, quite a few issues with broken kit because the the weather was so terrible, our, uh, oh, everything broke. Our seats broke, our footplates broke. Our rudder was so um, damaged in one of the big storms um, that I had to try and make a new one um, out of 
what's not much really that you've got in a boat. Um, so I took a, a piece of fin and I tried to make something and we had this thing rigged up at the back, um, which worked a little bit for a while, but then another storm came and just took it all out again. So in the end, we actually came into the finish line in Antigua with one of our oars, like the, like a gondola, okay? So we had the oar, this is how we were steering on the way in. It was like, okay, a bit to the left, oh, a bit to the right. So you'd have two people rowing and one person steering and it was pretty hideous because the time you're steering is the time you're supposed to be resting. But steering took a lot of energy. And, of course, created lots of drag, and so that made the boat go slower. So, yeah, it was, it was a pretty challenging time. Um, this is one of my favourite photos simply because this is me um, with two hammers in my hand, and this is one of my most favourite things. It was very good for frustration. <laughs> I used to hit quite a lot of things. They all needed hitting, but I just feel better afterwards <laughs> as I came off the back of it. We had to do all those things that, you have to do, like washing and trying to stay clean and trying to dry out our sleeping bags. So because we got very, very wet very, very early and because it's salt water, it's very hard to get it dry. So what happened was we would try and, you know, stretch these things out, but we had to be very careful to only have them attached in one point because if you attach them in two points, there could be a sail. And that means you get disqualified. So if you have anything that gives you any assistance, then you can be out of the race and out of the records. So little things like that, you never even think about them until you're out there. And then it's like, oh, what are we going to do with it? <laughs> yeah. So some of that stuff was quite interesting. You'll also see uh, in this picture, you might be able to make out just at the top here, um, there's some Christmas decorations. So we were out in the Atlantic at Christmas. And one of the uh, yachts that uh, was with us at the very beginning before we started the race couldn't believe that we would be out, you know, at, at Christmas time. And so they donated us Christmas decorations and said, you really must take these, you really must take these decorations. And they were being so lovely to us, we were kind of like, okay. <laughs> and we were really glad on Christmas Day we put them up and we sang. You know, and it was brilliant. It's little things like that just to cheer you up were, were pretty important, really. So uh, this is a photo of me and uh, Sarah rowing on one of the flatter days, wind sort of at the side. We didn't get a lot of tailwind, but we got a bit of wind to the, to the rear side, which was nice. Um, but what you also might be able to make out there um, is in the background there's a little... It's not little. That's a great big tanker. This was the most dangerous thing out there. So people would say to us, oh, did you see any sharks? And did you, you know, do this and this? And the most dangerous thing out in the middle of the Atlantic is tankers because they can't turn. So these great big enormous ships that are, you know, some of them 800 metres to a kilometre long, they're huge put themselves on autopilot and they're not looking out for four women in a rowing boat, <laughs> funnily enough. So we, have to, we had to really watch for those. Now, this was, this was fine. Obviously, it's a long way away, but you never quite know when something's going to, you know, appear over the horizon. And on one particular night, 
we had a, um, so in fact it was, it was us two who were on deck. Um, so we would have a, a system where overnight we would do what we'd call a soft shift. So we would have four hours where we'd, two people would be sleeping. So you'd get four hours, we'd get three hours, 58 minutes of sleep. And then um, the other people would be on deck and you would, like one would row and the other would be on lookout and, and you'd just kind of have a, a softer sort of shift overnight. So you were both rowing all of the time. And on this particular night, um, so Sarah and I are uh, on deck and we had a bit of row and we were having a cup of tea and we'd boiled up the kettle and we were, it was all going pretty well. And then we saw this white light on the horizon and we were like looking at each other. Yes, that? What is that? Don't know. Which way is it going? Don't know. Okay. Wait a little bit. Light gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we still, the, it's very deceptive when you're, when you're in the, you know, there's no light, obviously, and it was a dark night, so there was no moonlight. And all we could see was this light getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So obviously a light getting bigger and bigger means it's pretty much coming straight at you. We couldn't see any of the nav lights, so we couldn't tell, uh, you know, we couldn't see a red light or a green light, so we couldn't see whether it's starboard or stern or, or which direction, or we could see that it was getting bigger and bigger. So we got on uh, VHF radio and called up, um, you know, all ships, all ships. I gave them our, our location, you know, please respond, please respond, nothing. All ships, all ships, this is Mission Atlantic, please respond, please respond. All ships, all ships, this is Mission Atlantic, please respond. Getting higher and higher and higher. Um, Nothing, 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 no response, no response. Now, we decided, and this was a very big decision, I have to tell you how big this decision is. When you only get three hours and 28 minutes or three hours and 58 minutes of sleep, Somebody waking you up is really, really bad. <laughs> really bad. Okay? So if you're the person doing the waking, you really have to be willing to kind of, you're basically taking your life in your hands. Right? However, this light was getting so big, we thought, okay, so we can't raise them, we can't do anything, we're going to have to wake up the other two crew members. So Paul and Lois were in... Uh, in the little cuddy. So we, we had a longer conversation about whether to wake them up or not, frankly, than we did about, you know, the freighter coming at us. Um, <laughs> tells you a bit about the social work degree and how useful that was. Um, anyway, so we, so we wake them up and we say, look, we, you know, we've radioed, we can't get any um, joy, we can't find anything. We'd be doing something. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is a freighter. That's <laughs> right. So, so we woke them up, and Paula gets out of the cuddy, pulls herself up, looks at the light, and says, "It's the bloody moon." <laughs> oh. <laughs> We had to row an extra shift for that. 
but we were completely convinced. You know, we were about 48 days into this row. <laughs> we were convinced this thing was coming at us. We'd talked about it. Can't believe it. It was unbelievable. And yet, it was so clear as soon as she said it, we were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but you don't wake somebody unless you really, really mean it. So... Um, it was, it was amazing what this trip did to your mind. You just, you know, it played tricks on you and you, you really started to, well, clearly create all sorts of stories to yourself. Um, so, yeah, interesting stuff anyway. Moving on. Uh, so night rowing was some of our most favourite stuff. So we saw a lot of phosphorescence in the, uh, in the water, so this kind of really beautiful green-gold colouring that would just come up and just dance on the top. Saw um, not a lot of wildlife, but we saw some dolphins. And on the days we saw dolphins, we had a good day because it was fantastic just to see them turn up because they just came to visit us. It was fantastic. Um, We had a a bird with a broken leg that perched on the back of our boat for a couple of days until he got better and then he flew off. That was quite amazing. Um, But we didn't see a lot of wildlife. Sarah alleges she saw a whale one day. The rest of us are still in disbelief about that. We think that's sort of a tanker story. Um, And uh, I think I saw a sunfish one day. But again, who knows whether it really was or not. But these days were really beautiful. And um, rowing at night was particularly calm, you know, on on a still night. Just there was nothing like it. And for my colleagues here who were out in the desert, you know, those nights in the desert that were just amazing when we slept out and like that, except a bit more like this. (laughs) But same kind of thing. It was amazing. And, of course, because we uh, were supposed to be in in about 55 days, our friends and family were waiting for us from 55 days onwards Lots of them had taken time off work. Lots of them had had flown out uh, to Antigua to to wait for us in. And apparently there were a lot of these photos taken. So you'll see that they've all got the same T-shirt on. So they're the the T-shirts that we sold everybody to everyone we knew had at least one of these T-shirts. And at Christmas time, they all got other ones for Christmas. Um, And they continued to wait and they continued to wait and they continued to wait because, as you know, it took us 67 days to get in. So they had... uh, They had a few parties, I think, while they were waiting for us, but mostly they were just getting worried about us because our satellite phone had failed after 14 days. So we had no communication apart from a VHF radio, which basically only gets you, you know, maybe a couple of miles. So we didn't know whether they would still be there. Uh, And as we were coming in, the... um, my, I charged up my mobile phone and I said to the to the others, I said, I'll, I'll ring and tell them we're on the way because we had to get our, uh, our time officially taken. And uh, I said, shall I ask who's there? And they were all like, no, no, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. They've all gone. They all have gone. They all have gone because they all had to go back to work and nobody will be there and it'll be deserted. Well, it won't be deserted. There will be people in Antigua <laughs> like when we get there. No, no, they're all going to be gone, da, da, da. And everybody's really, really worried about it. So I rang and I got hold of um, my husband and I said to him, the crew don't want to know, but I think it's important. Can you tell me who's still there? And so he read off a list of names 
and basically everybody was there. All the mums, all the dads, all the, you know, all the boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, whatever, everybody was there. And only one person had had to go home for work and that was a friend. And so it was fantastic. So I came out of the cutting because I had to make this phone call in secret. So I came out of the, the hatch and I said to them, okay, well, I've spoken to Martin and, you know, the boat will come out, Mies is on the finish line. Um, and they're expecting some within about four hours looking at our position at the moment. Um, so we'll be about four hours out. Um, do you want to know who's there? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a yes. Anyway, so then I told them and they were all like, you know, fantastic. We erupted into this sort of like mini pre-party uh, just before across the finish line. But just knowing people were there was fantastic for us and it just got us across. In fact, it surged us on so much that we made the finish line in two hours and the people who were supposed to be taking our time got there after we finished. So we had to do our own official timing. It was hilarious. So this is us coming in. Um, I love this photo because this is a photo of Lois standing up for the very first time in 67 days. So she is she's standing at the back of the boat there. In the whole journey, she never stood once. She always crawled around the boat because she was terrified of going over the side. She was the bravest of all of us because she had the biggest journey. She didn't really want to come in the first place. She said, will it, be, will it be flat? That was one of her questions to me when I said to her, God, you want to row the Atlantic? Of course you do. She was like, will it be flat? Yeah, it'll be flat. <laughs> it'll be flat. It'll be lovely. All we need to worry about is sun cream. <laughs> and then, of course, we got into this just enormous hug fest where, uh, I mean, it was just incredible. Um, we were the first women in a fours boat ever to cross any ocean unsupported. Um, but that really wasn't the big thing. The big thing was we were back and we were safe and that's what people really loved. And it was just, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary feeling. So just really quickly want to um, kind of encapsulate this and then I'll take some questions. So this is kind of what did I learn really? Um, and I pull it down into three core areas. So the first one is acumen and there's three layers. So there's this thing about how much do I understand about myself? What do I really know about what's going on for me? And how does that come across in others? So what's the impact I'm having on them? What's the impact they're having on you? How do I manage that and how do I get that right? And then the third layer is this kind of understanding of human systems. So, you know, in cultures, we all have different ways of doing things, different things that are okay and not okay. How do we manage that between ourselves in order to do something quite extraordinary when you're just ordinary people? Because we weren't, you know, six foot eight athletes. We were like this high. Well, I'm actually this high without the heels, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, I, I was too old and I was too fat and, you know, plenty of people told me that. And actually just not listening was part of, the, part of the learning. Don't listen to people who tell you you can't do it. Listen to the stuff that's important to hear. So the second thing is about bravery. So, you know, people say be brave. I think it's about, you know, I said before Lois was the bravest in our crew because she faced the most fears. Being proactive, 
about goal setting, being brave enough to struggle through bit by bit and not thinking you're going to be perfect. It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be flat, calm, and it's not going to be about sun cream. It's actually going to be hard, and it's okay for it to be hard. And then practising making those obstacles into stepping stones. So how do you actually kind of transform that experiencing? Very interesting, room. Um, and then using some reflection and positive self-talk. So having a way of just looking at what's happening for you and turning that into a positive. And finally, discipline. And this is the most unpopular slide I ever put up. People hate this because actually it's just about hard work. You know, there's no magic in this kind of thing. It's actually about just sticking with things, staying true to your goal, practising getting your shoes on. So this is this thing I always say to people who say, I want to take up running, but I can never get out the front door, you know, or it's too difficult or I can't be bothered or, you know, whatever. And I always say to them, well, just put your shoes on. Don't worry about the rest of it. You're overthinking it. Put your shoes on, you know, put your kit on, and then you're going to sit on the couch and you're going to feel a bit silly, so you'll probably end up going out for a run. (laughs) And this thing about noticing ourselves, you know, how does it feel as I'm moving forward? How does it actually feel? Actually, you know, does that feel good? Do I need to do something different? But really cluing yourselves into it. And then this, you know, we're always too busy. Always. I was running my own business when I did this challenge. And no, the business didn't have the best year ever while I was out rowing the Atlantic. But I've turned it into a bit of a career talking about it. And I certainly use lots of the stories when I'm talking to people about team building, about leadership, about how you achieve your goals. So you can turn these things to something. And so that's made it really useful for me. And I just really want to finish off with this um, quote, I suppose. Often I hear people say, you know, oh, you know, when I get there, when I get there, and, you know, I'm going to be so proud of myself when I get there. But actually this is about saying, do you know what, just getting your shoes on is, is good too. And just getting that half step closer is good too. And so let's just celebrate being on the journey. Because if you wait for the end of it, you never know, that big light might not be the moon. It might have been a tanker and I might not have been here to talk to you about it. (laughs) Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.com edu slash institute